I hope to be, you know, a joyful vegan and, and, you know, there's always food is activism, right? Like you go to a party and you bring something that tastes really great and people are like, oh, what is this? And you're like, oh, it's vegan, you know, such and such. Or if someone compliments my shoes or my bags, I always say, thanks, it's vegan. So I think there's like little ways you can be an activist all the time without being preachy or yelling at people just to like plant those seeds. That was Ashley Williams, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 96. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. On this show, my guests and I are committed to one thing, telling the truth about our lives. Even if it's confusing or messy, even if we don't understand it, even if we don't like it, even if we're embarrassed about it, we tell the truth. No one's trying to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. You won't find any 10-day, six-step life hacking plans for anything. I'm totally over that approach, and I bet you are too. Life is complicated and messy and painful and beautiful, and we deserve more than a bunch of life hacking tips. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others, and we dive deep into topics like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, courage, change, and everything in between. This is an adult podcast covering adult subjects, which, warning, often means we use adult language, and we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way. With this mission in mind, you won't hear any ads, you won't hear any sponsor promotions. This show is 100% listener-funded, which means that we have complete freedom from corporate or outside influence. Awesome, right? Instead, these honest conversations are made possible by people like you, who give $8 or more per eight-episode season. If you're already supporting the show, thank you. You're the best, and I'm so ridiculously grateful that you're helping me to bring more real talk and honesty into the world. And if you haven't joined our support squad yet, here's where I invite you in and ask for your help. But first, let's talk about beliefs. I believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world we want to live in. And when you help to fund this show, you're voting for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a truly diverse group of people, the vast majority of whom are women. When you support this show, you're saying loudly and proudly that women's voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off limits due to fear or shame. This is a show by truth tellers for truth tellers. And if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. As a thank you, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our virtual book club, my weekly behind-the-scenes email series, and you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for Real Talk Live, the small, fun, in-person event series that kicks off in London in early August. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. Your support means everything to me. It truly does. And it's what will allow me to continue making new episodes for you as we join together to build a kinder, more open, and more truth-filled world. And now, let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Ashley Williams. Ashley is a vegan, a political activist, and the host of the podcast Green is the New Black. Her hobby is volunteering on political campaigns, which she's done in states across the U.S., and during the 2008 election, she served on a steering committee that raised millions for Obama. 
Most recently, she's been part of the New York chapter of the Women's March on Washington. In this episode, Ashley shares stories from her years as a political activist and volunteer, and she gives great advice on where to start if you want to contribute but aren't sure what to do. We also talk about boundaries, avoiding burnout, giving yourself permission to change, and more. Ashley shares personal stories, too, on everything from healing her chronic pain to diving deeper into spirituality when she considers herself a pretty logical type A person and even making peace with being adopted. I hope you love getting to know Ashley as much as I did. All of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all of the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we are good to go. Ashley, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Nicole. I'm so excited. I feel like this is like sort of a, a bucket list podcast for me, so I'm very excited oh, to be on. Well, that is a very kind thing to say. That's, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I um I was thinking about that myself in sort of in reverse of like the bucket list guests mm-hmm. to have on, but I've never thought about it in terms of because I love being a guest on other podcasts. Like which ones I would die to be on. But so what what else is on your bucket list? Uh, my podcast bucket list, sure, or just yeah. in general. Well, podcast first, and then <laughs> anything else yeah. in life. So I'm obsessed with um, Dear Sugar, which is now Dear Sugars. Um, Do you listen to that show? It's funny. I don't, even though I love her and Tiny Beautiful Things is like my favorite book. So you think that I should listen to it, but I do not yet. Oh, my God. Well, so for people who don't know, it's Cheryl Strayed and her co-host, whose name is escaping me, but he was the original Dear Sugar, which is basically a modern like Dear Abby. And so now they have a podcast version of it. And it's amazing. And like the questions they get are just like people's like deepest, darkest, most intimate stuff. And then they just like throw down like they say that they are all about like empathy, but like they're pretty direct and pretty straightforward and they call people on stuff and it's amazing. And they bring on sometimes um, guest experts to also answer the question. Um, and today their new season just came back and their guest today was Oprah. So I'm just like, Oh my God, it's like too many things that I love in one place. So it's such a good show. I highly recommend. So anyway, so that would be on my bucket list. I would love to be one of their guest experts who gets to come on and give advice and weigh in and set people straight. <laughs> Yeah, that, I mean, I'm sure I would love it for sure. Like I said, I mean, Tiny Beautiful Things, it's funny that, I think I've mentioned this on other episodes, like that is one of like what I think of as my like bonfire or burn it down books, meaning that like while reading it, it's so good and I'm so jealous that I didn't write it that all I want to mm-hmm. do is set it on fire. So like, <laughs> I, I like love it and I hate it and I love it and I hate it. So yeah, yeah, you're right about how direct and, you know, blunt. I mean, empathy also, you know, I think the two can go hand in hand. I think that that's like a misconception about empathy is that it has to be this like really soft handhold, you know, like it can be a little bit more blunt, but um, yeah, she's awesome. All right. So then on your, you mentioned, you know, for your podcast, who are your bucket list guests? Do you have anyone that you're like, oh my gosh, I would love to have this person on? Well, so it's funny that you asked that. So I have a podcast that's called Green is the New Black, but that show is actually being retired. Um, And I'm going to be starting a new podcast. So um, that won't be out until fall of 2017. So if people listen to this episode far in the future, they'll be able to find it. But so that's going to be a whole new show. And sort of the premise of that show is interviewing the people who've had the biggest impact on my life. Mm. Um, So my bucket list for that is ridiculous. It's literally like everyone that I've ever like loved from afar. So everyone from, and these guests, these people aren't confirmed yet at the time we're doing this interview, but maybe, you know, this will be 
good for manifesting, but, um, people like Dr. Jane Goodall, um, obviously Glennon Doyle, who is my queen, um, from Momastery, um, this author, Livia Bitten Jackson, um, she wrote three memoirs. The first is called, I have lived a thousand years and she survived the Holocaust. Um, she was in, I think like four different concentration camps by the time she was 14 and went on to become a spy and then eventually moved to New York city, um, which is where I live. She has this like, incredible story. So, um, those are a few of the people on my new podcast bucket list, but it's just, my list is ridiculous. It's literally like, if I get these people, the whole interview will just be probably me like crying, like thanking them for contributing to my life. (laughs) Um, so people, people in the fall can, can find that show and hopefully, you know, it'll be all, all of my, my dreams will hopefully come true. That's so funny. That's how I feel about my I have a a small podcast bucket list. But yeah, I agree that I'm like, I can't even pitch these people because all I would do is like fangirl and cry and like, I I, I can't I can't. Um, So we I saw I saw your bucket list on Instagram the other day. And I I was like, I feel like those are gettable people. Like, I think you should reach out. Was it on Instagram? No, it was in the Friday emails through the Patreon. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I will at some point. um, But I I guess I will sort of keep that a little bit under wraps for now. But I'm curious, (laughs) tell me about the decision to retire one podcast and start another? Oh, good question. So, so the first podcast is, I like to describe it as a sampler platter of different, um, alternative medicine and wellness and healing modalities. Um, so that started, it was born in 2015, um, October 2nd, 2015, which is also my mom's birthday and also my friend Aaron's baby's birthday. Um, so I chose that it was a sort of a special day to launch the podcast. And, um, so that was, So when I first started my coaching business, I was a health coach. I am certified as a health coach. Um, And so it made sense to interview um, sort of colleagues and other experts and coaches with very niche topics like getting off sugar or, you know, interview someone about acupuncture 101. And then as my own journey sort of developed and grew, um, I brought in more people talking about spirituality and um, more personal growthy topics. Um, And then I like to say like all good health coaches, I eventually got really sick of talking about, you know, green juice and brown rice. And I realized that, you know, all the, all the, the food is sort of like the really easy, like gateway. Cause we all, we all have to eat and we're all so aware of our health and our weight and our bodies and all of that. Um, so that was, you know, my gateway. And I think it's a gateway for a lot of people, but eventually I sort of realized that I wanted to do deeper, different work. Um, and I sort of, in the middle of all this, after having started my business, um, basically had a nervous breakdown. And um, so after that, um, after sort of this dark night of the soul, I ended up having kind of this spiritual awakening, which for me to even like say that still feels a little bit crazy because I so rejected any sort of like spirituality or like any woo-woo-ness because I grew up in a very religious family and I was just so like I just rejected that wholeheartedly Um, but then when you know when shit hit the fan that was sort of where I ended up and then that was all I wanted to talk about so then I wanted you know I wanted to have on priestesses and healer and all these like people doing all these crazy voodoo magic things um so yeah, so that's that's the first podcast. And now it just sort of doesn't make sense with the work that I am doing, um, which I classify more as leadership coaching um, and really addressing the self-worth issues and um, 
the negative self-talk and all of that, that a lot of people who want to be leaders in sort of all its different forms. And maybe, you know, we can talk more about what I mean by that later. Um, helping people get through the blocks that keep them from doing the things that they want to do. So it just didn't make sense for me to be talking about, you know, um, cutting out sugar when that's not what I talk about in my work anymore. Mm -hmm. So it's been a process to sort of like, let go of the first podcast. Cause it is my baby. It's the most successful thing I've ever created. It's, you know, I've gotten such good feedback from it. And I'm definitely a person who like loves being pat on the back. Um, so it's, it's a little bit hard and sad to kind of retire it. Um, and I need to do sort of a wrap up final episode for that to officially close it down. But I'm sitting at 80 episodes right now. And I just like the roundness of that number. <laughs> so I don't want to end on 81. So I have to figure, figure out if I'm going to like take away an old episode and make, like end on so perfectly on 80. I'm like very OCD. So I just really needed to be, I like a round number. So we'll see. I may just have to do like an extra 10 episodes just to end on like 90. Um, so yeah, so the new podcast is, uh, we'll be interviewing um, creatives, entrepreneurs, authors, musicians um, who have yeah, who've influenced me sort of the requirement for the first season is if I have not shared your stuff on social media, if I haven't sent your link to my friends, like you can't be on the show. So like, I'm not taking pitches. I'm not just saying like, Oh, Hey, so-and-so I saw you in a Facebook group, come be on my show. Like if I literally have not loved and obsessed over you and forced other people to know about you, you cannot be on the show. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff in what you just said that I want to dig into. I mean, the first thing that I can definitely relate to is sort of what do you do when the thing that you used to be obsessed with or the form that your work used to take, which was a really good fit, no longer is a good fit. And I think it's on one hand, it sounds like such a silly thing to say, because of course, we grow and change, right? And it's like fine mm -hmm. to move from one thing to another. But I think that I don't know if it's the nature of the internet and like writing quick bios about yourself or there's like this feeling of, okay, well, if you're in this one box, then like you're in this box forever, right? If you're a health coach or this is how I, I think about, I've gone through a lot of different iterations. Like when I was really focused on running and like did work mm -hmm. around helping new runners and that kind of stuff, it's so easy to become really attached to that version of yourself or that identity, especially like you said, if it's doing well, if you're getting pats on the back, like everyone likes to have an inbox full of like nice emails about, you know, that their work is meaningful and to say otherwise I think would be lying. And so to get to the point of this is successful and it's making money and people like it, but I'm kind of over it and mm -hmm. sort of having to work through, I guess my question is like, was there any sort of guilt or resistance that came up for you in this like transition and letting your like giving yourself permission to move on? Yeah. And I think for me, I take what I say really seriously. Like if I recommend something to somebody like a book or a food or a brand or whatever, like I take that recommendation so seriously. And I know that people who know me and I, hopefully people who followed my work, you know, they take my stuff, they take, they, they know that it's, it's legit and it's true and it's honest. And to change my mind and to be like, Oh my gosh, remember that thing that I was so into that I was selling you that I was talking about all the time. Now I'm not doing that anymore. I worry that it's somehow makes it seem like that was not legit or that I was just doing that, you know, like, I don't want to seem like it was like a, you know, that all of that wasn't valid and important and real or something. So I just, I just, yeah. So I'm 
probably making it all up in my head is like no one thinking about me and no one really cares that much. (laughs) But I'm just like, I don't want them to think that any of that wasn't genuine because Mm -hmm. it totally was. And the reason I became a health coach, um, I had had um, chronic pain since I was about three years old um, that was undiagnosed. And I was told it was all in my head and that I was making it up for attention and all of this stuff. And then um, I was working in the music industry and it got really, really bad. It was like debilitating where I couldn't sleep at night because I was in so much pain and I had migraines all day and my jaw popped out of place and I had a pinched nerve and I was literally falling apart. Um, but I happened to work at a really big company that had good insurance, which that was the first time I'd ever had insurance in my life. Um, and I was like, well, I can, I can actually do something about all this pain for the first time. And around that same time I had gone vegan and I didn't want to take medicine that was tested on animals because I was kind of waking up to the whole like animal rights movement. So I started going to acupuncture as an alternative to taking medicine and because my insurance would cover it. And that just like blew my mind after it took a long time for that to work longer than I think it normally does for a lot of people. But eventually my chronic pain that I'd had for like 24 years at that point completely went away. And I was just like, what is this? Like, I don't know what this is. This is amazing. And then I got into food as medicine and just became obsessed with all of it. And probably, I guess a year later, um, I was planning to quit my job in the music industry. Um, I was planning to quit like right after Labor Day, but instead I was laid off, um, I think on like August 22nd. So it was really close to when I was planning to quit. But the good part was that I got a severance for three months. So I had that three month buffer to figure out what I was going to do. And and so during that three months, I randomly stumbled on health coaching and was like, oh my God, this is it. Like, I love talking about this stuff. Like this is meant to be. And I just on a whim, like quit the music industry, didn't say goodbye to any of my contacts and just highly, I totally don't recommend this to other people, but (laughs) I was just like, I'm out. I found my calling. Like this is it. And I did it. And, and so it did it absolutely at the time meant so much to me. And so that I think, you know, I don't ever want anyone to be like, oh, you used to do this and now you're doing that. And was that all disingenuous? Like probably no one is thinking those thoughts, but I worry that people will. And then I'm like, cause I still have people who reach out to me for like health coaching and I'm like, oh my God, I'm so sorry, but I'm not doing that anymore. Like, you know, and that's hard cause, cause you know, I was a resource for them in the past where they would, you know find out about these different healing modalities or, you know, they were interested in working with me as a coach. And now to be like, Oh, sorry, I'm not the one for you anymore. Um, as a people pleaser, that can feel really hard to have to say no to people. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, but I think that you're touching on something that, I mean, is definitely not just specific to you that this idea that going back to sort of giving ourselves and each other permission to change, I think that there's this sort of fixed mindset of the only reason that you would change is because something's absolutely awful, right? Like this job had, you know, something has to be so bad, a job or relationship or whatever in order for you to make a change. And Mm -hmm. I don't think that that's true. Like I understand completely how you feel because I have felt that same way about, well, if I change directions, does that, you know, cast what I was doing in the past in a bad light? And it's a conversation that I've had with my friend, Alex Franzen, who's been on the show and she's, yeah, she's the best, right? Um, (laughs) She's written about this too, this idea that like, just after you make a change, it's not that you were lying before. It's just that like what's true for you has changed. And I mean, she says it a lot more eloquently than than I just did, but (laughs) that it doesn't have to, you know, you can move away from something that's either good, but not great or fit met your needs. Like until it doesn't, it's, you know, I think we have this tendency to like need to burn something down or need to cast it in a really bad light in order to give ourselves permission to move on. And Mm -hmm. if it seems like a small thing, but that's something that I 
definitely wish were different because exactly like you said, like it was a really great fit for you. And I'm sure you were great at it and really interested. And then, but you changed. So it doesn't mean that all that stuff, you know, was like you said, like not genuine, but if that's not completely where your heart and passion is, it's fine to move on to something else. But yeah, I do think that there's some, I don't know if stigma is the right word, but there is something like sticky around that. I, I agree. And I do think also sort of in this, you know, sort of the online coachy world, there are a lot of people who start out doing one thing and then they quit or, you know, they weren't successful and then they quit and become a business coach. And I've been adamant about like, I'm not a business coach. Like that's not what I'm doing. But I feel like I feel that sort of stigma on me of like, I'm not one of those people, I promise, you know, who like came in as like a life coach and now they're like, I'll teach you how to do Facebook ads. It's like, okay, no. So yeah, I think they're, I think, I don't know. And, but all of this stuff, no one in the world is sitting around thinking about except for like me, (laughs) you know, like no one cares that much about what I'm doing or my brand colors or the name of my podcast, you know, like it's so silly. So I think getting over, you know, thinking that people are thinking about us all the time is really important because no one is. Everyone's just living their own lives and every now and then they listen to us. Yeah, Yeah, I I agree with that, that it's really easy. I mean, because you're the center of your own universe to feel like everyone's paying a lot more attention than they are, which doesn't mean, you know, the flip side will just like be careless and give no shits. That's obviously not what you're saying. But yeah, being able to sort of consciously dial back how how much you I don't what am I trying to say that? Yeah, like people aren't thinking about you or people don't care as much as you think they do. And that that's a very freeing thing. You know, I also Mm -hmm. something that you just said that I think is, is also really relevant is sometimes we can get stuck by, you know, when you said, well, I don't want to be that person, right, who came into coaching this way and then is doing business coaching and is going to teach you how to do Facebook ads. It's interesting when we look at ourselves, like whatever the identity or type of person is that we tell ourselves like we can't be, there's something in that, like I'm always interested in what the resistance is. So like that thing that you just described that you said, well, I don't want to be that person. Like Mm -hmm. why not? Who is that person? Like what's your fear there? Mm, Good question. So I think when I say that, I have a few specific people that come to mind that I'm thinking of that exactly what I just said that I don't, the way that I don't want to be perceived is how I perceive those people, Um, which is very much that like they stood up and said, oh, I'm so successful doing X, Y, Z thing that wasn't business related. And then Fast forward a few years, they become a business coach. And then they say, oh, actually, guess what? At that time, I wasn't making any money. You know, I was living in my mom's basement. And so they were kind of lying at the time in the past. And now they're now they're saying, oh, but believe me now, um, which isn't the case for me. But I feel like I don't want to I'd never I don't want to be like I don't want to be like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want to be a liar. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's a good question, though. But I mean, but yeah, so that's the heart of it. It's not, you know, because there's certainly nothing wrong with moving from one type of coaching to another, which is exactly what you're doing. So it's not like you're you're saying you don't want to be that person. It's that right. you want to, what I'm hearing is that you want to tell the truth about, you know, your experiences and not to paint everything like rosier than it is, which I do think, especially in the coaching, you know, industry and online, like is very common. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I don't, I don't at all. And I, I like, you know, the people that I relate to the most and the people that I respect and listen to tell the dirty, you know, the underbelly story. And like, that's what I want to hear. And that's what, 
I relate to. Um, so I'm sure people will just sort of naturally, you know, natural selection will occur. And the people who want shiny and happy and quick fixes won't come to me anyway. And the people who want honesty and want to hear about how like, you know, I started a business and then had a nervous breakdown, like they will come to me and, and it'll all sort of work out in the end. Okay, so I'm going to ask for more details on a couple things that you said. So <laughs> when you say that, you know, you had your dark night of the soul, nervous breakdown, what is what does that actually mean? Because I think those like phrases or, you know, could mean different things to different people. Can you talk us through what was going on in that time? Yeah, so I'm trying to think what year is it now? So 2000 and I guess 14, I um, started, I was doing, so I'd started, I sort of, okay, let's back so I discovered I was, you know, I'd left the music industry. I discovered health coaching, um, had no savings, you know, obviously wasn't really planning on going and doing a coaching program and spending all that money. So for a year in between leaving the music industry and before I even started my health coaching program, I started working as a nanny, um, which I had done in college. Um, and you know, here in New York city, there's plenty of families to find for that. Um, and of course I went from a very stressful and unhealthy job in the music industry to a very stressful and unhealthy family that I was working for. Um, you know, where the mom wasn't involved at all. There were, you know, teams of people. I had to have basically an intervention to bring in a psychiatrist for the child. She was suicidal. Like it was horrible. Um, so that was a whole year. And then I started my health coaching program. Um, so that was another nine months. So, and I think that's part of also why, um, I sort of outgrew my business kind of quickly because it was really almost like two years in between like idea to starting the business. And I tend to, you know, change my mind on things pretty quickly. Um, so I started, I officially, officially started my health coaching business the beginning of 2014. And then towards the end of 2014, by then I was like deep into like all the online business programs. And I was like, you know, full on compare and despair and like really not feeling great about my business at that time. And I started doing this really crazy energy work, um, called network spinal analysis. Have you heard of that before? I have not. So it's super crazy. I'll give you the, I have a whole episode on my podcast about it. So I can, you can put the link in the show notes if you want. Um, it's this super crazy, like healing modality, like Tony Robbins does it. Um, and it's basically, it's like a chiropractor, but they work energetically and they're, it's basically based on the, the principle that like your spinal cord gets twisted like throughout life experiences. So trauma, um, you know, if, you know, physical trauma, like car accidents, emotional trauma, all throughout your life, your spinal cord is like being twisted, 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 twisted. And then they do this work to unwind all that energy that's being held up in your spinal cord. And there's all these emotional patterns that relate or connect to, um, the trauma that's being held in your body. So I started doing this work and some people go and like right away, they have like a huge physical reaction and they're just like, it changes their life and everything is like magical and amazing from that day forward. That was not my experience. Um, I did not know how to process all the things that were coming up. Um, and also I like all of my physical stuff that I had healed, um, a couple years earlier working with my acupuncturist would come back. So I would go for a session and then for like two weeks after I would have severe migraines and then they would just go away. And then I would go for a session and then for, you know, a week or two after my legs were hurting really bad again, which I hadn't had for years. Um, so I was going through all this sort of like 
healing of trauma, I'm making air quotes that people can't see. I was going through all that on the physical side, but I wasn't working with a coach. I wasn't seeing a therapist. And so I had no like emotional outlet for any of that. And I didn't know how to like, how to manage it. And so I was, I just, I became very, very, very depressed. I would say very much as a result of this energy work and not knowing what to do with all the stuff that was coming up. And so I was getting really depressed or I was already depressed. And then, um, my birthday came, it was my 30th birthday. And so my birthday has always been sort of a hard day for me. Um, so I was adopted and, um, so for me, it's like, you know, it's like the day that maybe someone else out there in the world, you know, my biological mother, maybe it's a sad day for her. And maybe it's, you know, the day it was the worst, hardest day of her life. I don't know. I always had all these stories around it. Um, so every year my birthday is always kind of a sad time anyway. And I'd always not wanted to turn 30 because to me that just felt so old. And when I was a very melodramatic teenager, I always thought I would, you know, die or kill myself before I turned 30. And so my 30th birthday came and I like literally just went off the rails and wrote, you know, a bunch of my friends this like really super crazy email. Like, I don't, I don't, it's just so off the rails and just really was, you know, not, I don't know. I don't know that I would say it was fully suicidal, but I was like inching closer to that. And, and then, you know, my friends kind of scattered and then I was, you know, felt very isolated and alone and, my anxiety was at its worst and I was just incredibly depressed and almost like bedridden. Um, and yeah, I just got to a point of being like, I don't know. I don't know how to fix this. Like I'm a fixer. I know how to, like, I have the answers. I work hard. I hustle. Like I know how, you know, I know, I know how to get through things. And I literally got to the point of like, I don't know what to do. I have no one around me who seems to know what to do. Um, and so I literally got to that point of just like on my knees and I'm like, someone other than me needs to be in control. Someone other than me needs to like manage this situation, which is so unlike me. Cause I'm, you know, I'm like, I'm good. I'm so, I, you know, I don't need help. I'm fine. And so in the same office where I was going for, um, the network spinal analysis, um, on Thursday nights, there is, um, they have something called Diksha, a Diksha blessing. And every Thursday, if I happened to be there for a session, like as I was leaving, there were like groups of like tons of people like coming in. Um, and this was in the winter. And so like one night there, it was like terrible weather. It was like a blizzard. And there were all these people coming for, for Diksha. And I was like, what is this thing? Like, I don't get it. Like what's so great about it. And so fast forward by like the next week, I was just literally like, my life is going to end or someone or something needs to intervene. And so I stayed on a Thursday for Diksha and it was my, it's a very strange thing, but it's basically like a hands on head blessing that you get. It's sort of like what Ama, the hugging saint, like when you hug her, like that experience, um, it's sort of like that. Um, and that, that was the day everything changed. And, um, you know, I've never done psychedelic drugs, but I feel like <laughs> that's sort of what it's like. And I left and I like had, I mean, I felt like I was on drugs for like the next week and I felt for the first time in my life, I didn't have racing obsessive thoughts. I felt this like overwhelming sense of like peace and love and like connection with the universe and all these things that like, I would never use those terms before that day. Um, 
And there was a song that was playing actually um, while I was there that like I played that song nonstop on repeat for two weeks straight. And anytime I had that song on, I wasn't having anxiety. And if the song wasn't on, I would start getting like really anxious. So that was like the song that would put me back in that moment and in that experience. Um, so yeah, so that was sort of the the meltdown and then the coming out the other side and then getting super into all sorts of different spiritual practices and meditation and eventually doing um, a whole initiation to become a Diksha blessing giver also. And yeah, a whole, a whole new world opened up that night. It's such an interesting story. The, I mean, there's... Oh, there's so much in there. I, I'm always really interested in hearing about people's, I think rock bottom is not the right word, but you know, that moment, the way you described it of sort of being on your knees and I can't help myself anymore. And like what I would think of as a moment of real surrender, like I, Mm -hmm. I, I can't do this. Like I need, you know, and it's that, I mean, usually tends to be where people turn to something spiritual. Um, but it's so cliche, it's it's, so cliche. No, but I mean, but cliches are cliche for a reason, right? That it's, that we do for, you know, we can, have our control freak natures, right? And everything's going along and going along. But like there does come a time, obviously more significant, you know, sometimes than others and for some people than others, but where you're just like, I can't do this anymore. Like some, I need something else. And while that can be really painful, I have found that it can also be freeing to sort of accept the limitations of your own lack of control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think for me, because I had grown up in such a like religious environment, I so rejected that whole concept of like a higher power is going to swoop in and save you. And like, I just, I mean, I literally rejected it up until the moment that I couldn't anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, but I was just like, okay, fine. You're right. <laughs> so I'm curious about sort of the, the self identity piece of that, you know, cause it sounds like you were really resistant to that element of how you were raised and even sort of listening to the terminology of, you know, this being really woo woo, or I'm never the person that would have said that. Like, do mm-hmm. you feel like you've accepted that you now feel this way or are you still struggling with, wow, like I'm a person who has the, you know, this faith or these spiritual beliefs or sort of how do you grapple with that? Yeah, good question. That's something I talk about with a good friend of mine a lot. We're both such like, you know, controlling, analytical, overachieving types. And now we're also like, so into all the woo woo things. And we still I think it's still like a thing that it feels so different from the self that I know and the self that everyone else knows that it is definitely still a thing where I'm like a little embarrassed to admit it. Um, just because I think I, I can, I can be a skeptic of it all. Right. Like I can go and, you know, I go to this thing or I've been to this thing called soul camp and we're going and we're doing like past life regressions and angel readings. And on the one time I can be so in it and be like, Oh my God, like this is everything. Like she's, you know, talking to her angel circle, her angel posse and telling me what's going to happen in my life. And on the other hand, there's like another part of my brain that's like, okay, this is slightly crazy. And like, we look ridiculous, but like, I love it. Like I love, I, and I like that about myself. I like that I'm skeptical. I'm never just going to be like a blind faith person. Like I think a little bit of healthy skepticism is awesome, but yet I also know that these things that are sometimes sort of silly have been really helpful and beneficial to me. So I think it's the fine line of like making sure that you're never going into a situation that's exploitive or, you know, following the wrong people or, you know, anything that's, there's one, you know, one voice and one person in the room saying this is the true path and you have to follow what I say because that goes into like a whole other culty territory territory. Um, but, you know, being open to like different modalities and different lineages and being like, you know, there's probably some truth in all of these things. And I don't know, like I don't I'm not that 
much of a faithful person where I'm just like this one thing, like this is the answer. I think they're all a little bit of the answer, you know, all together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that, that what you were saying about, you know, some skepticism being healthy and not the, the flip side of surrender. It's still it's like surrender, almost like with a critical eye, meaning like not giving all your power away, like in a cult situation, right? like what exactly. you were just saying. Yeah, totally. But I, I'm always interested in I mean, this is completely, like, you know, a selfish thing. Maybe I'm projecting onto you. But, you know, I feel like I feel very similarly about being a really cerebral person or, you know, analytical and very in my head. And, you know, there's a lot of those elements of, you know, being really organized and be any any of the traits that we could put with that that is for sure part of who I am and it's something that I really value and I I don't know that I'm as interested in or I haven't gone as deep down you know the, the sort of spiritual path as you have but I'm definitely interested in it and it's interesting for me when I catch myself because I think the skepticism is definitely like a good and healthy thing for sure but I do catch mm-hmm. myself almost sort of joking about the more woo-woo things or wanting to yeah. it's it's about like how I want to be perceived you know want mm-hmm. it, it's sort of an ego based wanting to make sure that like people know that I'm not I'm not too woo-woo or too yeah. and it's and I don't even really know what that's about I mean I think it is a you know it's a fear of being seen as you know having lost touch with you know this sort of like very rational goal-oriented person that I want to be so it's just I don't know I have no answers or I don't really even know what my point is other than that mm-hmm. I think it's it is interesting to watch the ways that we hedge our own sort of self-identity or description of like I'm really into this but I don't want people to think that I'm too into it like it's just funny how we're so self-conscious Mm-hmm. I 100% am the same way. It's like, I'll be like, oh yeah, I went to an angel circle and then like laugh it off with certain friends, but with other certain friends who are into it too, we're like full blown, like, oh my God, like what did angel so-and-so say to you? you? know, like, yeah, it's definitely, I have a lot of friends who are, you know, who are in politics or in the music industry that are very, very secular and they just like don't get this at all. And I definitely, I do think it is like, I don't want them to think that I've gone completely off the rails and I'm, I'm in a cult because I would have, you know, in the past, if a friend had all of a sudden said some of the things that I could say to people that I've done, I'd be like, are you okay? Like what's going on? You know, is someone like manipulating you into saying, you know, I'd be kind of concerned. So I think, yeah, I think it's a matter of like, who, who's your audience kind of, who are you speaking to? And like, are they going to, are they going to really think you have lost it or not? (laughs) And so I think one of the, you know, with those things, it's one of those things where it has to be like, you have to live it more than you have to tell them about it. And then they'll say like, oh, wow, you know, you seem different and you seem happy and, you know, what's going on? And then you could say, oh, well, you know, I started going to this thing on Thursday nights. Want to come? And then, you know, take them down the rabbit hole with you a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So you just said something that I'm totally obsessed with and want to sort of like underscore (laughs) this idea of knowing your audience. I I Mm -hmm. found, you know, with the sort of prevalence of almost like the fetish of vulnerability on the internet, right? Mm -hmm. Like how authentic can you be? How, and of course, like with a show called Real Talk Radio, like I'm aware (laughs) that this falls into that bucket a little bit, but it's like this idea of, you know, always being 100% your true self at, you know, any given moment. And I think on one hand, sure, that sounds great, but we don't just have one self. Like the conversation right. that I would have with my mother-in-law is going to be very different, you know, than the conversation that I would have with my best friend or my husband or the person who's delivering a package to my door. Or it doesn't mean that any of those are fake. It's just that we're, you know, we are different in different situations and that's fine too. And it is fine to have different interests and to have the friends that you talk about the angel readings with and then, you know, mm-hmm. the friends that you talk about politics with or I don't know, I I sort of shy away from this idea that is pushed, you know, by certain people and in some circles of, you know, being 100% your whole self all the time as if that's only one self. It's, right. it's like fine to, I don't know, I, but you, I know you get what I'm saying. 
Well, I have one of my old coaches um, that I worked with sort of at the tail end of this whole meltdown, um, who also has a podcast called The Joy Junkie Show. Um, her name is Amy E. Smith. She's been on the show. She's amazing. Oh, yeah. Love her. So she may have said this on the show already, but um, it's a quote that I always remember and pass on to people, which is, speak your truth to ears that can hear you. And I'm just like, amen to that. Because if I, yeah, if I went full on into like Diksha to like my parents, they literally would think I was like, you know, it was like demonic and like horrible or to my lawyer friends, they're going to be like, okay, Ashley, like, you sure you're, you know, you know, so yeah, speak your truth to ears that can hear you. Not everyone can hear you when you're, you know, full blown going into this stuff. Just like talking to some of my very woo woo spiritual friends about like social justice and politics, like that just doesn't really resonate with them. So, you know, you have to be selective what you talk about with, with people who are ready to hear it. Um, but I think also like living your values all the time so that people can say, so when they are ready, they can say like, Hey, I know you're, I've kind of heard like you're into this or, you know, now I'm ready to get involved in, in, you know, protests and the resistance, like, tell me about that. So it's like always being your authentic self, but not expecting everyone to like fully get it or come on board with you until they're ready. Yeah. I mean, and like you said that the sort of values in the core of who you are, maybe that's a thing that's, that's doesn't change, but this sort of more superficial stuff, like, yeah, not everyone wants to talk about erotic novels with me. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, that's fine. So it's, yeah. Okay. Okay. So you've mentioned a couple times, you know, politics, activism, resistance, that kind of stuff. And I know that um, that's part of your story and part of your background. So will you share how you got involved with that? Yeah. So, well, the really far back answer to that. So um, when I was a kid, um, we were homeschooled. Um, So we were home, we were at home a lot. And my mom didn't want us to watch a lot of TV. So we, you know, we had like a certain number of like hours we could watch per day. But she said, well, if you watch the news, you can watch as much as you want. Probably thinking like a seven and like nine year old aren't going to watch CNN headline news, which was like the only 24 hour news channel back in the day. Um, but we did because <laughs> at like 15 minutes after the hour would be like the entertainment report, which I was really into. And my brother would get into certain things. So we just became obsessed with like sort of world events and therefore also politics at a really young age because we were watching it all the time. Um, But then fast forward um, to, I guess, 2006, 2007, I very early on was a fan of, well, I guess going to 2004, after the 2004 DNC, became obsessed with Senator Obama, um, his wee young little self back in the day. And I was the first person that I knew of that was like, I think he should run for president. And everyone was like, no, he's too young. It's too soon. Um, and then, you know, fast forward when he first got in the race, I would literally argue with like some of my smartest friends who were like, it's going to be Hillary. And if it's not Hillary, you know, John Edwards, like there's no way. And I was like, nope, it's Obama. It's Obama. It's Obama. And so I got very, very into him very early on. And, um, ended up, I'm trying to remember the sort of progression of events, but I had, one friend, my my friend Katie, who was my coworker at that time, um, when I was working in the music industry at a, a very well known company, um, and she was my first political friend that came out as also being an Obama supporter. Um, so it was like the two of us were like our, you know, sort of like on the down low that we weren't, you know, sort of supporting the establishment candidate. And eventually we became part of a steering committee for a group called Generation Obama um, that fundraised um, for him. Um, we were a group of young professionals that eventually there were chapters all over the country and millions and millions of dollars were raised through events. Um, and then 
over that. Oh, actually, so going backwards. So that was actually when I was interning at the company um, with my friend Katie. Um, and then I graduated from college. And then in the summer, I was looking for a job in the music industry. I had interviewed at that same company um, where I had interned and didn't hear back and didn't hear back. And so then I did um, something called Camp Obama, which was a training for field organizers. And it was amazing. It was at a church in Harlem that had been a part of the Underground Railroad um, with Harriet Tubman. And um, it was just so amazing. And I was like, oh, my God, this is what I'm going to do for, you know, this was in the summer. So the camp, the election was that November. I was like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a field organizer and I'm going to go to a swing state. And then before I had a chance to get assigned to actually go somewhere, um, I got a call back from this very big company that I had interned at and, um, the job I interviewed for wasn't available anymore, but another one had opened up and I got a job offer that I begrudgingly took because everyone told me I should, because it paid really well and it will look so good on a resume. And I didn't really want to do it because I knew, you know, I knew I had been there before. I'd been in the company before. I knew that it was a very stressful corporate environment that wasn't what I wanted at all. But I listened to everyone else and I took the job. And then sort of to make up for the disappointment of not being able to um, go and work on the campaign, I volunteered as much as I could. So I would go out to Pennsylvania as many weekends as I could. And that for me was like, absolutely life-changing that for me like planted the seed of feeling like I can make a difference and my life mattered and you know it was more than just up until then I was a really good behind the scenes person um I was really good at taking care of everyone I was good at making sure the artists had what they needed and making sure other people shined um but that for me was like that first little like seed being planted of like oh maybe like my showing up matters and I could make a difference and we went to these neighborhoods weekend after weekend in like inner city Philadelphia and I saw a level of poverty that I had never seen before you know except for on the news and I felt it always felt so far away and so separate and to actually be standing you know on someone's doorstep and seeing that, you know, people, it would be getting dark and people would be sitting in their house with the lights off because the power had been shut off or little kids running down the street with no one watching them, like two and three year old kids, no one's watching them. They have no shoes on. There's trash and glass on the, on the sidewalk. Um, you know, people whose steps you couldn't even walk up because they were falling in and just a level of poverty that I had never experienced for. But to have the opportunity to speak to those people and really the sort of top down directive from the campaign was about inclusion and hope obviously and inspiring people to get involved and by asking them for their support and asking them for their vote instead of you know scaring them into like oh don't vote for the other guy because he'll do these terrible things but it was really about asking them to join us and so to stand on someone's doorsteps and like look them in the face and say we need you and you matter and we can't do this without you uh, people would actually have like a physical reaction to that. You know, these were people who had never heard that before. Um, and for me, that experience, that like person to person contact was life changing. And I mean, it was like crack. I was just like, I don't know what this is, but this is amazing. And I want to do this forever and pretty much have done it ever since. Um, and so I was in Philadelphia on election day. I was there for the last um, five days of the election, um, which is GOTV, get out the vote, sleeping on my friend's floor. And I, you know, it, there's just, there's so many memories from that weekend. I could, you know, we could spend two hours just me like weeping and telling you those stories, but <laughs> it's just, it, for me, it was, it was like, it's so, it's so like communal, like everyone like 
this like marching towards this sort of like greater goal all together and like pushing yourself harder than you've ever pushed yourself and no one sleeps and no one eats right. And, you know, just all for this common goal is addictive for me. That's just like, I was just like made for that kind of life. Like, and if I'd been alive in the seventies, I definitely would have been a cult, like full blown, um, like a commune that eventually becomes a cult. Cause I love that sort of like all of us working for the common good feeling. And then obviously when you win, it's, it's a really great feeling. And so I was there, you know, when they called the state of Pennsylvania, I was at one of the polling locations I was responsible for that day. And I danced in the street with the men from the crack house next door and, you know, people, not everyone had smartphones back then. So if like one person got word of news, you would just kind and like yell it to everyone else. So I ran back from one polling location to the other polling location. I was like, we want Pennsylvania. And everyone was just like cheering in the streets and, and it was amazing. And then I took the, the Chinatown bus back that night from Philly back to New York city and was sitting on the bus next to a man who had gone to law school, um, with Senator and then, you know, president elect Obama and, I'd st- and, and so we were listening to someone had like one, I think two people on the bus had smartphones. So one person was playing CNN and we were all crowded around on the bus listening to the results come in and they called it. They said he won and everyone started chanting, you know, yes, we did. And I just like I didn't believe it until the kid who was sitting behind me who had the other smartphone. He goes, um, Barack Obama's Wikipedia page was just updated to say he's president of the United States from 2009 to 2012. And something about it being on Wikipedia is the thing that made me believe it was true. (laughs) And that's when I like melted down and was hysterically crying. And so this guy who had gone to law school with Obama was like patting me on the back. And then and then I got really car sick and I started throwing up the rest of the way. So that was my election day experience. But since then, I've I've worked on other campaigns in Texas and New Jersey and um, obviously did some stuff for Bernie and then for Hillary and was at Hillary HQ on election night, um, her Manhattan HQ on election night and did some stuff for the Women's March. And so to me, I've, it's 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 the weirdest hobby like anyone could ever have. I've never been paid a dime for many, many hours of work and sleepless nights. But I just it is the most fun, energizing, exciting thing I've ever done, which I think most people are like, ew, politics, like it's so negative and it's not, you know, talking to strangers on the phone, asking them to vote. That's not fun. But for me, it is the most joyful, amazing, fun thing I've ever done. And I highly, highly recommend it to everyone. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I mean, yeah, there's there's so much in there that I think, you know, is is relevant to what's on people's minds right now, right? Especially mm-hmm. that yeah. so I mean it sounds like right from the beginning that this felt like and continues to feel like a really great fit for you, just like listening to you describe it, you know, gives me like warm fuzzy feelings just like yeah. hearing about your experience. But I think that there's there are a lot of people who are especially now maybe interested in being more involved but feel totally overwhelmed or mm-hmm. you know they aren't in a position you know you said the not eating right sleepless nights being totally committed to one goal I think that's yeah. a good fit for certain people and not a good fit for others right like not everyone sort of has the time and space to do that and um So I guess I'm curious from your experience of doing this and obviously, you know, volunteering and working with a lot of different people, are there any easy ways to get involved in politics that that you would want to share? Like if someone has no idea where to start, but they want to do something, what would you say to those people? Yeah. So there's, there's so many ways. So 
I would say, cause if you're like, if you, you know, I'm sure people are overwhelmed and for some people it is just about sort of resisting, you know, the current administration. And I know you have a lot of great resources on some of the different groups that are doing a lot of stuff, but just generally speaking, if you're feeling over overwhelmed for where to start, what I, where, what I always recommend is to start with the thing that breaks your heart. Start with, you know, if, if the image of, of little Syrian children face down in the water breaks your heart, start there. If, you know, you are devastated by the breakdown of the nuclear family, start there, go support those candidates, right? Um, you know, so I think in terms of politics and social justice and activism of, in any form, like start with the thing that breaks your heart, because that will motivate you to keep going when it gets tiring and when it gets hard and when you're busy and when you're overwhelmed. So you start there. And then you look at what unique skills do you have to bring to the table? So some of us really like doing the on the ground work. A whole lot of other people don't like that and have no interest, but there's ways that they can support those efforts, whether it's, you know, donating money, which is sort of an easy thing. You, you can donate a small amount of money to help pay for the buses that take the people who want to go and, or, you know, supporting organizations doing work on the ground in a place like Syria. Um, but then sort of the organizing piece to that would be don't just you donate, but like invite other people to donate as well. Um, you know, create fundraisers uh, with your friends and family. Or if you're a mom, like invite everyone in your mom group to, you know, do like a playdate fundraiser. Um, I think looking at your unique skills. So like if you're if you're um, a graphic designer or a web designer, offering those things up to small campaigns or small nonprofits that are doing work that you support, um, you know, because they may not have the money to pay someone to really do it. If you know, if you're good at PR, you can support, you know, a campaign with something like that. There's so many ways. And even if you're, if you're like, okay, I'm not good at any of those things. I don't have money that I can give and I don't have, I don't want to go talk to voters. You can be something that on a campaign we call a comfort captain, which is pretty much what it sounds like. You're a person that's just there to like be supportive and like smile and like cheerlead people on. And maybe you walk around and hand out cookies or you are the person that greets people when they come in or, um, you know, something at like a rally or something, maybe you don't want to march at a rally, but you'll show up at the end and, and bring, you know, water for people or hand sanitizer to people at the women's at something like the women's March, because everyone's using porta potties and they're gross, right? Like there's so many ways you can just do what you're naturally good at and contribute it to a bigger movement. And that's, and I think that's what I love about politics and social justice and organizing is that there's a place for everybody. Like everyone can, you know, we need everybody, you know, to change everything. We need everybody and everyone can just give what they have. And that's, that's enough. I think that's what I love about it. It's all enough. And, you know, there's such little, um, funding in, in a lot of, you know, the sort of grassroots organizing and definitely with nonprofits and social justice, there's so little money behind it that it's all about people power and what people can give and whether, and, and if all you can give is just showing up and being a smiling, happy face and the, in an office, like that's enough. Yeah, I think I mean, you're touching on something that I know just I mean, my sample size is small, but of the friends, you know, and, and peers that I have talked to, one of the things that tends to come up a lot is this feeling of I'm just one person, like what I do doesn't actually matter. Like if I make this phone call, you know, this feeling like mm-hmm. we're too small to make a difference. And mm-hmm. I don't know. So I'm curious if there's anything else that you want to say about that. Why? Yes, I do. Martin Luther King was just one person. Barack Obama was just one person, right? So it's all, it's, you know, a collective group of, you know, individual people are the ones who, who shape the world and who change everything. Because look, we see 
one person as president, look what he can do. Look at, you know, one person can change everything. And so to quote uh, Obama on the campaign trail in 2008, you know, he said, one voice can change a room, one room can change a city, one city can change a state, one state can change the nation, one nation can change the world. And I, I firmly believe that, you know, one person with a good idea or one person who's capable of getting more people in a room can change everything. So yes, we are all just one person, but we know other people and we can invite other people to join us and we can inspire other people in all sorts of different ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love that. For me, what's been helpful and not to say that I don't still feel like this from time to time, like it's very easy to, you know, open Twitter, open the news and just feel like Mm -hmm. this sort of onslaught of, I don't know, just like overwhelming terribleness and to feel like, (laughs) you know, this one tiny thing that I'm going to do on one afternoon, it is easy to tell yourself the story of it doesn't matter whether you show up or not. And sort of for me, and this is like what you just said is is incredible and uplifting and my like very selfish sort of (laughs) way that I get myself even into that place is even if like let's be you know cynical whatever like let's Mm -hmm. say the phone call that I make or showing up or doing you know whatever doesn't actually make a difference yeah feels better to me to do that than to sit at home like spiraling into despair so you know what I mean that I'm like if categorically it doesn't matter you know I mean I guess who's to say because I believe you're right and I would like to believe that you're right and everything that you just said and even the days that I don't feel like that it does still feel better to show up than not show up and even like you said I think another holdback for people is this idea that you have to do something monumental or nothing at all, you know, to Mm. think it's not enough to hand out water. It's not enough to write a postcard or make a phone call. But it's like those little things, they do add up. And I think they they inspire hope on like a personal level. Like I feel more hopeful when I take small actions than when I, you know, scroll through Twitter and just, you know, like yell about the state of the world. (laughs) Yeah. And it really, for me, why I love this work is that it is about people, right? Like me being a little boppy girl in 2008, being like, oh my God, vote for Obama. You know, like there were so many people that I know that I had a chance to impact, right? And and to tell them that they were important, they were necessary. I know that had an impact on them. And there were so many people along the way that I met that impacted me that I still talk about that I will tell my grandchildren about. So at the end of the day, life is about people and those little person to person connections do make a difference because you're right. You know, all of this, every protest, every March, it all may be for nothing. You know, like I wholeheartedly feel that, you know, a lot of bad things are going to happen before they get better. And so those person to person contacts are what are actually going to matter because if our government fails us and our institutions fail us, and especially as women, if our rights are taken away, what are we going to be left with each other? So it, you know, all those, those little person to person things are may end up being all we have, but also, yeah, like you were saying, the feeling of like doing something, even if it doesn't work out is so much better than sitting at home. And that's how I felt on election night. Um, in November, you know, I stayed, a lot of people left, um, the field office and went to the Javits center for the party. And then they were kind of there as the first results were coming in and people were like, Oh, you should go. You know, I was lucky enough to be given a ticket to get in. And I was, you know, people were like, oh, well, you should, you know, you just go and watch the results there. And I was like, I want to know that I, I was a a phone bank captain, which means I was helping the people who were making calls, um, training them and all that. And I was like, I want to know that I stayed and fought to the last 
second. Like I, you know, even when it wasn't looking good up until like the last like half an hour of it, um, I was like, I don't, I was like, we will call until we are not allowed to make calls anymore because you know what, maybe we will inspire five people to go and get in their cars and go vote. And maybe those five people will, will win a pre- precinct and maybe that precinct will win a county and maybe that county will win a state and maybe that'll help us. Like I was not giving up until the last second. So those, those, you know, yeah, it's always better to know that you did everything you could. Mm-hmm. So I want to hear more about you mentioned uh, something that you when you were going door to door, whatever the training was for that, that, you know, the message was around inclusion. I'd love for you to speak more about what you were actually taught, like what this sort of messaging looks like, like top down in something like that. Mm, good question. Um, I mean, I don't, you know, off the top of my head, remember verbatim, but it was always really about actually, I'm like looking at my desk. I have hold on, I'm gonna stand up and get something out of my inbox that I think I still have from 2016, which is sort of similar. Um, but it really is, you know, talking about um, community building and, you know, we can't do this without you. Um, hold on, let's see. I want to find like an actual reference I can give you, but. Um, da, 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 da. I don't know. Uh, that's like a little bit. I have like a whole, I save all my political stuff. I still have stuff from like 2007, 2008 that I'm going to like leave in my will to someone and I hope they appreciate it. Um, but really the feeling was always about um, really that it, that it was about all of us, right? That each of us could play a role, that, that concept of like one voice can change a room. And so like anytime you had a chance to, whether it, it was door to door or at an event, asking people to volunteer that, you know, knowing that you could be the person that could get a hundred other people to show up um, was always the messaging. So when we would go and ask people to vote, it wasn't just like, oh, great, so-and-so, you're going to vote. But then it was like, great, you're going to vote. Who else lives in your house? Can you bring them? Can you, you know, can you invite all your neighbors? Will you check on the little lady down the street that we just talked to? You know, it was always about like, great, I invited you. Now, who do you invite? And it was, and it really was about creating and building that movement um, of like, bringing in as many people as possible. And I think to me that, that, um, that's how you win. And I think that's definitely what, you know, Bernie did was like, okay, you brought your friends now have them bring other people. Right. Like I think that messaging of like, um, that sort of snowball effect of like everyone bringing someone, um, is huge and making everyone feel important. I think that's one of the biggest differences. And I kind of hate to say this publicly, but I, my personal, personal feeling and personal experience and the difference between the campaign in 2016 and in 2008 and 2012, was it felt a little bit more like, Oh no, we've got this thing. Whereas like in 2008 and 2012, it was very much like, Oh great, you're here. Can you bring five more friends? You know? So, and I, I really do think in a way that's the difference between a winning and, and losing campaign is like the winning campaigns, include everybody. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and in a very genuine way, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. So for you personally, obviously, it's clear that you're really passionate and fired up about this. But <laughs> I'm curious how you handle burnout, or, mm-hmm. you know, because obviously, this kind of work is most successful when it's on an ongoing basis, right? Like, of course, doing something is better than nothing. But doing something over a longer period of time is better than doing something just once, right? Like the more you mm-hmm. go down that train, how do you how do you think about that? Or like, what does that look like specifically for you? If you do feel burned out or things that you put in place, you know, maybe it's self care practices to avoid that? What does that look like for you? 
Yeah. So I think that's when the fact that I am a coach and I am so deep into like the wellness and personal growth world definitely are helpful um, in terms of, you know, self-care and being able to sort of recoup instead of just, you know, pushing through. Um, I have a friend who said once that, you know, for her, the sort of political intake of all the news and all the stuff, like it's sort of like eating a really big meal. Like at a certain point, you're just filled up and you need to stop. Um, so I definitely take breaks from Twitter and take breaks from, you know, reading certain articles. Um, I intentionally avoid, um, hearing about or seeing, um, the person who currently lives in the white house. Um, and, uh, I try my best, you know, to, to not get sucked into sort of the petty stuff that kind of takes over the news cycle and focus on like bigger long-term goals and, and projects. Um, and so I, I got involved in, um, the New York chapter of the women's March. Um, so not the March that happened in New York, but actually, um, sending people from New York to DC for, for the March. And that sort of like consumed my life. And then after that, I really had to like take a mental health break <laughs> and just like, I would do like my five calls in the morning, you know, fivecalls.org. I would do, I started, a a rapid response team and I was curating actions for us. And then after a while, I just kind of had to like do not nothing. I definitely was still signing petitions and, you know, doing a call here and there, but I definitely had to give myself a little bit of a break, um, to also like work on my own business and focus on my own life. And so I've had like quite a few months where I haven't been like super, super engaged, um, up until more recently now with like the healthcare fight, which is a very personal one to me. Um, and now I'm actually sort of actively looking for a group that I can support longer term going into the midterms. Um, and really, but also using those sort of tools of like boundaries and, you know, saying no and, and going into it, knowing that I'm going to have to communicate to them that I can't, work on their projects till two o'clock in the morning. Like I need to, you know, I need to have boundaries and I may be a little slower than I would like to be, but you know, sleeping and eating is important. And, um, so going into that, knowing that I need to build in structure and boundaries for me, that's like kind of life changing to not just be like, I'm here, tell me what you want me to do and I'll do all of it. Cause I could do all of it. Right. And I could drive myself into a hole. So really like using, you know, all those tools and having boundaries and saying like, okay, I want to help. I'm going to, you know, next year, come November, those last couple weeks, I'll probably just not sleep. But up until then, I have like a year and a half to, you know, have boundaries and limit the amount of time that I give to any one organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love the heart of what you're saying, or, you know, what I'm hearing that you're saying is this idea that, first of all, you can care about something a lot. And that doesn't mean that it looks the same at every different phase in your life, right? Like you said, like mm -hmm. those couple of weeks leading into it, it's the same with, with business. It's the same with training for right. a marathon, right? Like that, you know, there will be a time where like it is peak frenzy mode, right? If you're launching something new in your business or, you know, if it's in the lead up days to your wedding or, you know, whatever it yeah. is that that is more all consuming and that's fine. It's the, and d during other times, it's like, I don't know, I think as someone who has trouble with moderation, which is definitely me, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> that I, I have a, sometimes it will give myself a hard time for not going all in on something or sort of like overvaluing all in. And that if it's not all mm -hmm. in, then it might as well be nothing. And like, I really have to work consciously at, no, no, 
it is better to just, you know, if this is a phase where you need to take a complete break, that's fine. If this is a phase where, you know, it's an hour a week that you can dedicate to, you know, whatever the thing is, that's fine too. And kind of back to the beginning of the conversation we were talking about, about giving ourselves permission to change when it comes to, you know, what our career looks like. I think this is the same, like this expectation of things being static in any arena is just like a setup for disappointment that there, it is this, like, even with boundaries, like a constant reevaluation of, you know, what can I give at this time? You know, like what's really important to me and, you know, being able to be flexible with that. I don't know. Everything that you just said resonates with me a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think if we, and I'm the same way where I'm like all in or all out. Um, but I think knowing or having to continually remind yourself that you will ultimately be more useful if you rest and if you pace yourself and if you don't go completely crazy and drive yourself into a hole. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is, you know, sometimes a hard learned lesson, but hopefully we can all keep that in mind. Yeah, I agree. So <laughs> pivoting completely topic wise, um, okay. you mentioned before uh, transitioning to being vegan. Tell me the story of how that happened. Oh, well, I went vegetarian when I was 11. Um, and that literally was like, so when I was um, young, um, as a part of my family's church, um, we went to um, a farm that um raised, I guess, livestock to be used also for the organization for another um, organizational building that they had in New York City. Um, So they have a farm out in New Jersey. And so it was like me and my best friend and this much older, very like dark, cool, edgy girl were all like sitting there and like having lunch. And I was already kind of like grossed out about like, oh my God, like, I don't want to think about the animals. And like, it was already like, it was already like my nature to, um, to sort of like not want to eat animals. And I could never eat any sort of, you know, like chicken wings where you can like see the bone, anything like that always freaked me out. Um, but this cool, edgy older girl was telling us how she was vegetarian. And like, she was sitting there eating just like a white bread with cheese and mustard sandwich. And we just thought she was like, so edgy and like, so dark (laughs) and cool. She was like Daria, but like in real life, when you're like, you know, 10 is just like, and in that world wherever no one's like that, we were like, wow, like she's so cool. So, um, we went vegetarian that day, me and my best friend and, um, not with a ton of conviction because again, it was just trying to be cool, but we, but we both wanted to stay vegetarian. So we, a family friend of both of ours, um, cleaned at night at a slaughterhouse, um, near where we lived. I grew up in the country in upstate New York and, he cleaned there at night and he would say like, oh yeah, in the freezers, you know, there's the cow heads and there's the pigs hanging upside down. And so he took my friend there. She was a little older than I was. She took, he took my friend there and like showed her inside the freezers to like instill in her. She wanted to go there to like have it like more firm in her that she didn't want to eat animals. So eventually I had him take me there too. I can't believe anyone let any of this happen, but, (laughs) um, (laughs) um, so he, so he takes me there, me and my brother. And I remember I got out of the car in the parking lot. And the first thing I saw was a cow eyeball that had somehow made its way very far away from the building. Like it must've been stuck on someone's clothes or something. Oh my God. Yeah. And so he took me in and I was like freaking out because it was so, I mean, it's just such a cold, horrible environment. And this was like a small family farm situation. This wasn't even like the most gruesome stuff that I would learn about later on. But, um, so eventually he did open up the freezer with the cow heads in it. And I mean, it literally was like a full head looking in your face. I mean, it was horrific. And when I was a kid growing up, we would go to my neighbor's farm and we would get fresh milk. So I had been around cows. Like this was not, you know, it was, it was horrible. And so anyway, so that was back in 1996 and I haven't had meat since then, but again, it wasn't with like a ton of conviction or 
I wasn't an animal rights activist or anything like that. And then, um, I had like one friend, my friend, Laura, um, who was vegan and it was like her and like, um, Alicia Silverstone were like the only vegan people that I knew of. And one day on a whim, I, again, completely on a whim was just like, I'm going to be vegan. And I was like, I, I think I was like, I knew this, this is terrible, but I wanted to like lose a little bit of weight and all the vegans I knew were really skinny. So I was like, Oh, I ha- I'm going to go vegan. And so my mom came to visit around that time to visit me here in New York city. And we went to, um, candle cafe, which was the only vegan restaurant that I knew of at the time. And we were sitting there and she was like, well, why are people vegan? Like what's wrong with eggs and milk? Like don't animals just, you know, produce those naturally. And I was like, well, I don't really know. I don't, you know, again, no conviction. And so my mom went home. And she, you know, as a concerned mother was worried that I was going to be like malnourished or something. And she goes home and she Googled, why are people vegan? If you Google any combination of like why and vegan, (laughs) you get a lot of really great information and some expose videos and things. And like five days later, after she got home, she emailed me. She was like, Ashley, she's like, I have not been able to eat anything in five days. She's like, I, all I can think about is these animals and these factory farms, like blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I had no idea. Cause like when I went vegetarian, like Google wasn't a thing, you know, like we didn't even have a computer for a long time. So I then Googled, why are people vegan? And learned about the factory farming industry and the industrialization of food or animals as, you know, part of the food production system. And obviously was horrified and sickened and, then just became like a full blown guns blazing animal rights activist and stopped using, you know, got rid of all my leather shoes, stopped using products that were tested on animals. And just because again, because I can't do anything halfway like you, um, just full blown, just went from like, I don't know, to like marching in the streets. And like, you know, I was totally that, that new vegan friend that's just like meat is murder. And how can you have a pet and also eat chicken? Like you're terrible. And I like was super militant for a really long time. Um, and yeah, so that's how I went vegan. <laughs> and then eventually, I, after I did my health coaching program, which wasn't a vegan specific program, and a lot of their work was based in um, Chinese medicine and Ayurveda and macrobiotics and, and looking at, you know, some people feel better when they eat meat. And that really, I mean, I still, you know, it's certainly not what I ever recommended to my coaching clients. I didn't work with people unless they were willing to cut out animal products. But um, I think that sort of softened me a bit and opened me up to like, sometimes, you know, medicinally things like bone broth can be helpful where before I was just like, I don't care, like you can't have that, you know. Um, So I think that definitely softened me in terms of like my outward approach. Like for me personally, it's still like a non-negotiable. I'm also like mostly gluten free, but like I'll totally cheat with gluten and like vegan is is an absolute non-negotiable. So if I'm out and I'm traveling and there's no options, but something, you know, some crackers that might have you know that have dairy in it it's just like nope I can I can be hungry like I'm not gonna die um so yeah yeah I think so you know what you said about um you know not being as militant or like softening your approach I don't know that I was that I was ever super militant about being vegan but I tend to find you know as someone who does have trouble with any kind of moderation like Mm -hmm. I go from one end of like the pendulum right then the pendulum has to swing all the way to the other end to be able to find something that's like in the middle and I think I mean veganism I like what how you described it as essentially like two different sides of it there's like your personal choices right which you do have control over and that can be as militant as you want or not but (laughs) then there's the side of okay like who do I want to be in the world with this kind of stuff and like I think about that a lot of you know I believe because obviously you know me too I share your beliefs that 
but I don't, I don't know. I don't want to be that like preachy, judgmental, like people can eat whatever they want, right? Like everyone's the CEO of their own body. They can do or not do whatever they want. And it's not my place or I don't want the role of, you know, anything that, that doesn't just like let people make their own choices. Right. So it is an interesting thing to balance, like having a really strong belief with also, you know, not being, I don't know, up in everyone's face about it all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, um, for me and I am, you know, um, and one thing I want to say, like for myself, like, yes, I could have, you know, I have no leather shoes or any of that. But I just, for anyone who's listening to that, who think that might seem like extreme, people always ask like, Oh, is it hard to be, you know, vegan and to shop that way? And I'm like, no, to me, it's, it's easy and it's joyful. And I'm proud of it. Like, it's one of the things I'm most proud of about myself, um, that I live my values like 24 hours a day. And I think talking about it in that way of like living your values and like what feels aligned for you is a lot more effective than just like yelling at people. Um, you know, and for some people like that mean, you know, that may not be, you know, something that upsets them enough to want to change or right now it doesn't upset them enough to want to change. For me, it was just like, once I knew, um, Dr. Jane Goodall has this quote that says, um, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never again say you did not know. And for me, once I know something, I'm like, I can't, I can, I, I take voting with my dollars really seriously. And I could never like, I can never backslide for that reason. Cause it would, you know, I can't look at that, you know, those crackers and be like, Oh, I'm really hungry. Cause I instantly go to like what's happening in a factory farm and like the abuse of animals. So, but I come to, come to accept the fact that, you know, for other people, like they're working on other stuff and that's not, that's not their priority right now. And so I, I hope to be, you know, a joyful vegan and, and, you know, there's always food is activism, right? Like you go to a party and you bring something that tastes really great and people are like, Oh, what is this? And you're like, Oh, it's vegan, you know, such and such. Or if someone compliments my shoes or my bags, I always say, thanks, it's vegan. So I think there's like little ways you can be an activist all the time without being preachy or yelling at people just to like plant those seeds. Yeah, no, I love that. I mean, I also think that circling back to what you were saying about, um, just activism, right? If, if it's, you're showing up and you're the friendly person and, you know, in the office who's giving the smiles that like, that's enough. I think mm-hmm. when we talk about food related things, like this is definitely a hot button, you know, triggering issue for a lot of people. So I'm, I'm always kind of like, well, mm-hmm. how do I want to go into this? But that, it, you know, cause there's such an emotional connection to what we eat, of course. But I mm-hmm. think the same, you know, obviously words mean stuff. So identifying as vegan does come with, you know, a certain set of parameters of what you do and don't do. But I think I have come to believe more that it's overall less important than, you know, like how we identify, meaning, you know, I've talked to plenty of people who that's mostly the way that they choose to eat and live and it is important to them, but it's not a hundred percent of the time, right? Like even Mm -hmm. I think about me, like with my backpacking gear, I have a down sleeping bag, you know, is it more ethically sourced than another choice that I could have made? Yes. Did I still make that choice because it was lighter weight? Yes. Does that mean technically I'm not vegan? Yes. But does that mean that, okay, well, if I made this one choice, that means I might as well not do any of these other vegan things. And you know, like it's, I'm always interested in giving myself and other people sort of grace to go at their own speed or to take as many, make as many changes as they want, but not all the changes. If that's, you know, I kind of getting out of this all or nothing, you know, you have to be in this context, a hundred percent vegan or like nothing you do matters. And I think the same could be true with activism. You have to quit your whole life, you know, and join this thing and, you know, tirelessly work for this person or nothing that you do matters. And I don't believe that either of those are true. So it's, I don't know, it's always nice. I love what you said about, you know, activism in little ways, or it can be, you know, that small things matter too. Mm-hmm, definitely. 
Yeah, I love that. Um, something else that I wanted to circle back to when you mentioned, I think you said having chronic pain since you were three years old. Did I hear that right? Yeah. Whew. So was it after doing acupuncture, like was that sort of the fix for you or sort of where, where is that at in your life right now? Yeah. So it literally, so I went to my acupuncturist. Her name is Aisha Abel. If you're in New York city, go to her. Um, she literally changed my life to me. She's like up there. She is like Jesus to me. She's like the end all be all of like people in the world. Um, so I went to her, um, I went to someone else first and it was a, well, it was a, the acupuncture school in New York. They had like really cheap rates and you could go to the student. And I had friends who went and said it was great and the students are supervised and it's all, it's all great. And it's just a little bit cheaper. And I went and the student that I had had no bedside manner. And I was so nervous because I am really afraid of needles. Um, and I was ha- having so much anxiety. I was like, I'm just a disaster. I had so much anxiety and he didn't tell me not to move, which you, I guess is like a given, but like I moved around a little bit on the table and it actually like hurt a nerve in my arm. So I had like stabbing pains for like week after weeks after, which shouldn't happen with acupuncture. Um, but I was so desperate. I was just in so much pain at that time. Um, and so I, I looked on Yelp and the first highest rated person on Yelp, I didn't like the way their office looked. And the second highest rated person on Yelp was Aisha. And so I went to her, turns out she'd actually just moved offices. So that picture meant nothing. Um, but I went to her and it actually took her a really long time because like all the things that should have worked on me for, for arthritis, which is what I had been diagnosed with, like didn't work. Um, I was such a hard case. My stuff was like so deep rooted. Um, and she had to go back to her mentors and go back to all these books and like really do so much research. So I was, I was working with her. She was giving me um, all these herbal remedies and then she did something called cupping on me. Um, and which is like these, another like Chinese medicine methodology where they like use these like suction cups to suck toxins out of your body. And they put these crazy bruises on you. Um, if people watch the, the last Olympics with Michael Phelps, him and all the swimmers had them. Um, and she did that once. And that was the day my chronic pain ended. Wow. And yeah, my late, my body pain. And then she's then after we healed that, then we moved on to like migraines and like other forms of pain. But yeah, like that literally was like the turning point, like before and after. So like whatever, the cupping sucked out of me that in combination with all the other things I was doing, um, sealed the deal. And since then I, so I went at the time I had pain every single day, which I actually didn't know that I had pain every day until she had me track it. Like if you would ask me, I'd be like, Oh, you know, every couple, you know, maybe once or twice a month, like I, you know, I can't sleep at night cause my legs hurt or I'll be limping a little bit, but I didn't realize until she had me track it that I was literally in pain every single day of my life. Cause I was just, it was normal to me. Um, pain since I was a little kid was normal. And I, my pain threshold was so high and I was so disconnected from my body. Um, you know, Glennon Doyle talks a lot about like being disconnected from our bodies and like voting our bodies off the Island. And I feel like I voted my body off the Island when I was three or three years old for the sake of like surviving. Um, cause I mean, I wouldn't have been able to function if I had, you know, sort of like let the pain take me over. Um, so it wasn't until then that I realized I was in pain every single day. And so fast forward to now, um, occasionally it's really funny when I'm very, very, very stressed. Um, every now and then I will get a a migraine for like a day instead of like several days, or I will all of a sudden have the pain in my legs come back, but it's usually for like 
a few hours and it's always this, this has probably happened like three or four times in in the years since I did acupuncture um it always comes around a time when I'm like at like peak stress levels so it's really interesting to see how the mind and the body are connected and um it's always I actually now I'm actually really grateful for it when it comes back because it's, it's I forget like I forget that I used to feel that way all the time and it's always such a nice reminder of like oh yeah that's how it used to be and look how far I've come so mm-hmm. sort of a Nice little like, oh, hello, old self. I remember that. So when you were first working with her and it said Mm -hmm. that you said that it took a while, um, Mm -hmm. what kept you trying and working with this one person? Like, did you believe that it was going to eventually work or, you know, what was your sort of like mental, I don't know, like, how did you not give up? Mm -hmm. Well, so she was like my therapist. Like I, at that point, hadn't worked with a therapist and she was just such a good listener. Um, and I was working at this, the same company that I had mentioned before and it was really stressful and I hated it so much. And she had kind of been involved in a lot of, you know, different things and, um, can't remember if it was in the entertainment business, but she knew, she kind of knew that kind of world. Um, she knew what I was going through and she was such a good listener. She was like a big sister to me, um, that I just kept going just to talk to her. And then, then she would put needles in me, but I just went to keep talking. Um, actually. So yeah, that's why I kept going back. And also I was lucky enough to have good insurance that was paying her. And so it was free for me, um, through my insurance. And then, yeah, it was like free therapy. So she sticks needles in me while it's happening. Why not? (laughs) And it wound up paying off. It sounds like. Yeah. Who knew? (laughs) So funny. So when we were emailing before recording, um, just about things that might be fun or interesting to talk about, you mentioned something that totally caught my interest. You said that you wanted to talk about overcoming your personal adoption story with the help of little dog. (laughs) And I put like a star next to that. I have to hear this story about the little dog, whatever that is, I want to hear about it. So tell me, tell me about that. Okay. Well, okay. So, well, let's put aside the adoption story for a minute because I didn't know that's what was going to happen in this story. But, um, so kind of, I guess on a serious note, so, um, uh, I guess about, what is it now? Um, probably about two years ago, right around now. Um, I had a friend, um, that was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer and it had spread all over her body. And obviously, you know, it wasn't like a, it wasn't looking good. And she had a dog, a little dachshund, a long haired dachshund, um, named Penny. And so she called me, um, when she was first diagnosed, well, first, actually first she called me before she had even told a lot of people about it. And she wasn't like a super, super close friend. She was, we knew each other for, through another friend and we had shared, um, musicians that we loved that we, we met on our way to a John Mayer concert, um, <laughs> back in the day. Um, so I wasn't, you know, I wasn't one of those people that you would think would be like the first person she would call when she gets this kind of diagnosis. But she knew obviously at that time that I was health coaching and I knew a lot about alternative medicine for healing. And also that, um, around that time, someone in my family had also been diagnosed with cancer and was taking an alternative medicine approach to it. Um, so she called me and told me and said like, do you have resources and links and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, I do, but you know, someone else in my family like has a ton more than I do. So let me put you in contact with that person. And, um, so they, they connected and shared resources a little while later. Um, she called me again and said, so this is like, this is a really hard question to ask. Um, and you can totally say no, but if things don't work out, if things don't go well for me, um, would you take Penny, her dog? And so I, 
have a dog. My, I'm very impressed with her that she's been quiet for this entire amount of time. Um, I have my little dog, Avery, and I had my cat, Randy, who I'd had since I was 11 years old. He was named after Jonathan Taylor Thomas's character on Home Improvement. <laughs> um, so he's little Randy Jonathan. Um, and so I'm like the most nutty, obsessive pet parent, like in the history of the world. Like they literally are my children. I barely ever travel because I can't leave them. Like I base my entire life around them. I brought them with me to college in New York City. Um, which meant that like I couldn't live in a dorm. So I spent like $25,000 on an apartment to finish school and so I could have them with me. Um, so everyone knows like I, no one is crazier about their, their fur kids than I am. And so she called me and she said, you know, like, I know that like, you know, if you, you know, if you take Penny, like I know she'll be taken care of. I know she'll be loved. I, I know she'll have a great life. And I, you know, was just, so moved that she would ask me again like she has other you know closer friends than me that she could have asked but she she asked me because she knew the kind of crazy dog mom that I am and um dog and cat mom but my my cat has since passed away um and so I, I was like oh my god of course yes like I'll take her like no problem blah 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 didn't really put a lot of thought into it um because like I live in a very small apartment in New York City and you know technically pets aren't allowed in my building and but I was just like yes of course no problem and also hoping and you know, that things would work out and she would be fine. But, um, so then last year, um, unfortunately she did, um, pass away. And so some of her friends who were local took the dog at first and then, um, kind of were like, so you're taking Penny, right? And I was like, I guess I'm taking Penny. Like I wasn't really prepared for this really, but I'm taking Penny. And, um, so Penny about a week or two later came to live with me and she had been sort of a lap dog with my friend. She, my friend was, you know, sick for a while. So they were all, all, they were together all the time. And anyone who has a dachshund knows that they're very loving, cuddly little dogs that, you know, just will like wrap their arms around you and hug you. Um, and I was never home. Like I, my schedule, you know, at that point I wasn't expecting her. So I didn't, hadn't canceled anything. And my dog is just used to it. So she's fine. And poor little Penny, who's now been shuffled all around to all these different places and, you know, driven in a car for the first time, probably, um, would literally yelp and whimper and cry for hours and hours, like the entire day when I was gone. And my landlord lives right above me and he works at night. He's a paparazzi. Um, totally normal. Um, so he works at night and he's at home during the day trying to sleep. And he, I asked him, I was like, is it okay? You know, can I take my friend's dog, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, Oh sure. Fine. Thinking she'd be, you know, a little quiet dog. She was not a little quiet dog. She was desperate and yelping and whimpering and crying. Cause she was terrified. And then my dog would start barking and it was horrific for everyone in the building. It's a really small building. And so he was just like, I'm sorry. He's like, I can't live this way. Can you give the dog back? And I was like, no, I can't give the dog back. Like she has no one. Like, what are you talking about? No. Um, so that was like, so I just canceled my whole life for like a week and I was hysterically crying every day. And I was like, I don't know what to do. I'm going to have to move out of New York city because she's doing it here. She's going to do it anywhere else. Like, what am I going to do? I was like totally just at a loss. I couldn't, you know, I committed to taking this dog. And I told him that I was like, if she comes to me, she's one of my kids. Like I'm keeping her for life. Like, you know, she wants once you're in the family, you're in the family for life. And she was like, I know, like, I trust that about you, blah, blah, blah. So I felt horrible. I'm going to like betray my friend. Like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I can't give this dog away. So my mom out of nowhere calls me and she was like, well, if you want, she was like, if you'll fly her here, we'll, we'll take Penny, we'll take the dog. 
they, by the way, we like had the same family dog for like over 20 years. He had just passed away. They were free from a dog for the first time in like, you know, decades. And they just gotten two cats and were, you know, so much less work. And I was like, no, I was like, I can't give her to you. And like passing off, you know, my commitment onto you, like, that's not fair. And she was like, no, you know, we, we thought about it. And, you know, your dad's going to be retiring soon. And, and we were, you know, it'd be good for him to have a little buddy, to have a little companion dog. So, so long story short, I ended up flying Penny a few days later to Florida to live with my parents, where she now lives and has a backyard and is like the happiest, most spoiled, rotten little dog. She's like their, their early grandchild. But it wasn't until about a year later, almost a full year after um, I had moved her to Florida, that I had a realization um, about being adopted. Because, you know, when you're adopted, people always say like, oh, you know, you were just loved so much that you were given up. And, and I, I always thought that was kind of a bunch of crap because like, I don't give away the things that I love. Like, you know, I spent thousands, tens of thousands of dollars to not be away from my dog and cat for two years. You know, like I don't give up the things that I love. And I was, I was telling someone the story of Penny one day and I was like, yeah, you know, I want, I, you know, I committed to keeping her. I wanted to keep her but she just wouldn't have had a good life, you know, if she was with me. Like my lifestyle just didn't work for her. She wouldn't, it wouldn't have been good for her. She wouldn't have been happy. So I had to give her, you know, to, 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 to people who could take better care of her and give her the kind of life that she needed. And it was literally as the words that were coming out of my mouth that I was like, oh, oh, maybe like that's what, you know, maybe that's what my birth mother had thought. And it completely, like up until then I had such a negative view of the whole thing and really felt like, I wasn't wanted and I was probably, you know, the result of like something terrible happening to her. And it was just this horrible, really negative, dramatic story that I felt like had influenced everything for the rest of my life. It really, you know, if your own mother doesn't want you, like, how can you ever feel good about yourself? You know, it had really affected my self-worth and I think is a big part of why I was always such an overachiever and never felt good enough. And, you know, so many things along the way had been influenced by that sort of core belief of like, I, you know, was like thrown out with the trash kind of feeling. And it wasn't until I was telling someone about how I had to give up Penny for her own good that I realized that maybe, you know, that cliche thing that everyone had told me, maybe it was actually true. So that was for me. And then I was like, you know, hysterically crying for like a while after that. And um, so, yeah, that was sort of the beginning of a realization of like, oh, wow, maybe, maybe what was true for this little dog could also have been true for little, you know, baby me when I was given up and that there doesn't have to be some horrible negativity around it. And it can actually be this really like lovely thing. And of course I think it's like, so, you know, beautiful that it comes full circle with like me giving the dog to my parents and I was given to my parents and like this whole thing. And they're such good, adorable people. (laughs) That's a beautiful story. Yeah. Yeah. I've never said it out loud. So yeah. (laughs) No, thank you for sharing that. I think that's such a beautiful story. I have nothing to say back other than thanks. And that was beautiful. So I think that's a good place probably to start to wrap up. But before we do, um, I wanted to ask, is there anything that hasn't come up yet in this conversation that you really want to talk about? Um, that has come. No, I, I feel good. I feel like it was like a good round rounded conversation. So thank you. Okay. So then the way that we end these, as you know, is with our community questions. So a series of nine sort of rapid fire ish questions that everyone in our Patreon community, the awesome folks who fund the podcast, um, want me to ask all of our eight guests this season. So if you are down for some random questions. 
I'm excited. I'm nervous. <laughs> you don't have to be nervous. It's fine. There's no right answer, just your answer. Um, so the first question is about routines. And with so much focus on morning routines, can you share what your evenings look like? How do you typically spend your evenings? Oh, good question. Um, how do I spend my evenings? I... I love to set myself up for the next day. Um, and I also like, in case people haven't caught on to this yet, I like to organize and sort of, you know, have everything have its place and, and all of that. So part of my like winding down for the evening is like unpacking, you know, whatever bag I've had with me that day and, you know, doing dishes. So there's none in the sink when I wake up and sort of all that sort of prep for the, the day before I, I have a whole process for my to-do list and then I'll pull out, you know, the top three priorities for the morning and put them on a post-it note in a certain spot. Um, and then I kind of, um, you know, I have all these different crazy herbal things that I take at night and I get my dog her medicine and I just sort of like wind down a little bit with those things. And then I list, this is a really strange thing, but I listen to a comedy podcast, um, right before bed. Um, cause I tend to be, you know, I tend to think a lot and it's sometimes hard for me to sort of relax and get out of my head. And so I, it's this one comedy podcast that they only have, I don't know, like 60 episodes. So I've listened to every episode, like probably like five times each, um, over the last like two years. And every single night I have to like, listen to it before I can go to bed. <laughs> What's the podcast? Uh, it's called, uh, Oh my gosh, I'm totally blanking. It's, um, what say you? So have you ever seen the show impractical jokers? No. Oh, so it's this completely ridiculous show on like true TV. And it's these four friends. They're like in their forties now who've been, they're from Staten Island and they've been friends since they were teenagers and they like pull pranks on each other and like force each other to do embarrassing things. So not, it's a thing that does not make any sense with like who I am as a person and all my like just wanting to talk about like you know social justice and saving the world it's completely silly but I love the show but I don't have cable so I can't watch the show so (laughs) two of the guys from the show have a podcast and it's what say you and there's just something when I was going through a really really hard time like they were like the one thing that made me laugh and so I still like kind of like it's just like so comforting and cozy to me to hear their voices and their terrible like Staten Island accents and just like they just laugh at each other and they're just so silly and they're such good friends and it's just like a really warm cozy thing that I enjoy. What do you most want to be known for? Ooh. Um I really good question. I really want to start a movement of people who believe that they matter and that their story matters and yeah, who feel brave enough to share it. Cause I think when we, you know, when one of us shares our story, it gives everyone else the confidence and the bravery to share it as well. Um, so yeah. So, you know, if I, if I die tomorrow, I'll feel good. Like having this, you know, <laughs> an opportunity to be on a show like this and in the work that I do to be able to share my story in hopes that it, it helps other people to, to share theirs as well. Mm-hmm. What's the last thing that made you feel totally awestruck? A moment that, I don't know, stopped you in your tracks, left you at a loss for words, but in a great way. Ooh, oh my gosh. Awestruck. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Well, this might be this might be kind of weird. So I obviously, having worked in the music industry, really love music. And when I find a song that I'm just like, oh my God, like, Oh, I just like, I like lose my mind. Like I can't even like function for a while afterwards because I get like obsessed with a certain song. Um, so I would say the last time I had a feeling of like, oh my god, this is so good. Like that sort of awe would be when I stumbled on this song called "Little Light" by um, Lewis Watson. 
And I literally like flipped out and like just had to play it like on repeat forever and send it to everyone that I know. Um, it's just so good. I just love great songwriters. I love words. I love great writers. Um, so anyone who can string words together in a way that like just like literally hits you in the face and makes you stop what you're doing. To me, that's always super ins- inspiring. So I think that was probably the last time I had a feeling of awe. Yeah, I totally feel the same way. And I can relate to that feeling of, oh my God, I'm so obsessed with this. I have to tell everyone that I know so that they can also be obsessed with it and we can all talk about it together. <laughs> and then favorite. what if they don't get obsessed? Then that's like the worst feeling. <laughs> but at least you've told enough people that someone will and then you have someone to talk about it with. <laughs> um, if you were given an unlimited amount of money to try to fix one problem in the world, what problem would you choose and what's one thing you would do? One thing I would do that's separate from the problem? No, like towards it. Like maybe towards the first it. thing you would do or just something that comes to mind. Got it. So I think um, increasing access to education for women or for girls and for women also. Um, I think, you know, they say when you educate a girl, you educate a family because if you educate a boy, they tend to like leave and go off to the big cities and other industries. And if you educate a girl, you're educating her children, you're educating, educating the whole community. Um, So I think that's what I would do. I would love to do um, more to support girls who've been rescued from the sex trade um, and to educate them and help give them life skills and also business skills. Um, so I think the first thing I would do, I guess, would be to set up a whole <laughs> system of being able to fundraise for that and to have sort of an umbrella, you know, system to raise money and then give it out to organizations that are already on the ground doing the work. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. <laughs> What's one of the best gifts you've ever received? Oh, it was very recent. So um, it was a, a book, uh, not a book. It was a, um, a care package with three books and a notebook, um, from someone who owns an independent bookstore in Minnesota, which was like so lovely. And, uh, the notebook on the outside says alternative facts, which I find hilarious. (laughs) And the, the, um, I guess the proceeds from the notebook go to ProPublica, which is, um, uh, like a, it's a group of like journalists that are independent and doing great work. And so it was a bunch of um, work, uh, books around um, social justice and feminism that I hadn't heard of. Um, so yeah, great books, great book rec- recommendations, like make me so excited. And these were like, I feel like so well curated for me. And it was a gift from a person that I barely know. And so the fact that like someone I barely know gave me such a, a perfectly put together gift little box was like, just like touched my heart so much. So. Yeah, that's lovely. what's one habit that you've been successful at adopting over the past few years that you feel proud of? Habit. Uh, One, um, I guess this is a habit. I think, um, and this is so cliche. I hate being cliche, but um, uh, the like a morning journal practice, and you know, doing the five things you're grateful for, and um, then at the, I guess it's the what is it, the five minute journal, where like you do like your morning pages, and then you come back at the end of the day and write down like the things um, that happened that you that you loved from that day, or lessons learned, or all of that. So I've gotten consistent with that, um, which I'm proud of because I'm so not a morning person, and so for me to like have to do something in the morning. Um, I'm so like foggy and like not ready to function in the morning. So the fact that I've gotten myself in the habit of like getting up just that little bit earlier to actually um, write a few pages for me is like groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. What's one of your biggest fears? Biggest fears. Um, oh, this is so gruesome. I'm like really paranoid about my parents dying. I have a lot of fear. I mean, I guess that's probably everyone's fear, but I like 
like I, I worry about them driving on the highway <laughs> and like, I really like want to like micromanage their whole lives. Like I just, yeah, my biggest fear is my parents dying. Mm. So you mentioned before loving book recommendations, books in general, I'm the same. And so this next question is about books, huh? which two to three books, any type of book, any genre, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you recommend or reread most often? Good question. Um, okay, hold on. I'm going to get my microphone and go to my bookshelf, which is slide myself down. Okay. Books that I, um, books that I reread the most. So fiction would be the lovely bones, um, by Alice Siebold. Um, and then let's see books that I recommend the most. I think that I recommend to clients the most would be there is nothing wrong with you by Sherry Huber, um, which is all about like overcoming self hate. Um, and I feel like it's a really great sort of like intro into, um, negative self talk and, and sort of self abuse um for people who are just sort of baby stepping their way in i think that's a great book um right now the book that i literally like should just buy like like a box of them so i can give them out at any given moment to anyone is um glennon doyle's love warrior um so i am so late on the glennon train i'm sure lots of your listeners know her but like i'm just in the last few months have i saw her um speak at oprah super soul sessions um in la a few months ago and i was like hyperventilating because it was like the greatest thing i've ever seen in my life (laughs) and i've gone back and read all of her blogs so i have already read the book twice i started a whole book club for it i'm creating an online book club for it i've given my copy to two different people my mom has it right now she just she texted me the other day she's like i've stopped reading because i don't want it to be done she's like "I, i have like two more chapters and i'm refusing to like let it be done um so that i think i think that for the next little while will be my like most gifted book just because I think her writing is so powerful and so many people will find different things in the book that they relate to and I just think she's like extraordinary and she's going to change the world and I'm obsessed with her um trying to think if there's any others that I recommend oh um get rich lucky bitch by Denise Stuffield Thomas um that's a money it's all about like money your money blocks and like manifesting money that's another one I've recommended to a lot of people and also read a few times I love it so the last question if you could leave our community the listeners with one call to action what would it be maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take hmm. I think a small action to take would be to get curious about ways that you can contribute to the world. So it doesn't, for me, it's all very political for you. It doesn't have to be. So, you know, think about the things that like when you hear about it, it makes you so upset or it gets you so fired up or you want to rant about it. And so instead of ranting, start thinking about what are little ways that you can start contributing to helping with that issue or that cause or that group of people And then actually do it. So I would start with just getting curious about what that might be, but then baby step your way into actually taking action. Yeah, I love that. So what's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new people? Uh, so I have just switched all my social media over to my real name, which is well, sort of my name, which is very considering I might as well be named like Mary Jones. Um, that's like a very big deal for me. <laughs> so I'm on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and it's all my URLs are all Ash Clay Will. So short for Williams, um, Ash Clay Will. Um, so yeah, I right now I'm not, uh, on any of those places a lot. So probably the best way for people to actually, 
um, have a conversation with me would be through email. Um, so people can hop over to my website, um, which is inspired by Ashley.co. And, um, you know, there's a contact form where you can join my email list. And I actually would love like if people like listen to this and it gives them an idea or they want to like, just like say hi to actually send me an email. Um, I'm much more likely to respond to you that way than just like a comment on Instagram, which I, I've like deleted Instagram from my phone for a while, so I may not even see it. So email is sort of old fashioned. I'm like a grandma, but like, that's the best way to actually talk to me. I love that emails become the thing that's old fashioned. So funny. <laughs> um, well, I will put all of that in the show notes. Ashley, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Nicole. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. I couldn't do this without you. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by amazing people like Heidi. Hi, Heidi. Hello. We are going to do a fun little round of rapid-fire questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. Tell me how you usually spend the first hour of your day. Oh, okay. Um, Well, the first hour of my day usually is a little rushed because I never want to get out of bed. (laughs) Um, I usually the first thing I do when I get up is say hello to my cat and my husband and then run around like a crazy person getting ready for work and then I have about a half an hour commute to work and once I get there I usually stop at the coffee shop and buy a beverage and then start plugging away on my to-do list what is your beverage of choice uh right now it's um Starbucks refreshers in a can all right yeah, I've been doing be a lot of iced tea lately now that it's hot. Yeah, anything cold right now. I know, right? It's so good. I'm very <laughs> excited for it. Um, what are you totally obsessed with these days? Uh, these days, there's a couple things that I'm totally obsessed with. Um, my life has kind of been in a period of change for the last two years. Um, I got diagnosed with celiac disease so uh, two years ago in June. So I've been obsessed with learning everything I can about it and finding a whole new world of celiac bloggers. I didn't know that existed until I got diagnosed. Um, and I'm also obsessed with, this is my, I've been at my new job for about two months now and it's the first time I've ever had my own office. So I'm obsessed with decorating it. (laughs) That sounds so fun. It's so much fun. Yeah, I uh, having a home office now, I mean, I've worked from home or for myself in some capacity for a really long time, but it was mostly like in studio apartments and like on the couch or at the dining room table or at the kitchen counter, you know, which was fine, obviously, but it's so it's been so nice to have an actual home office. I'm like, oh, my God, I can decorate this and I can close the door and I can do work in here like a real person who works. It's it's been really awesome. (laughs) Yeah, this is uh, I came from my last job was pretty much a cubicle farm. So it's the first time I've ever been able to shut my door and not have anybody else in the room. It's very strange. It's the best. Yeah. I love it. (laughs) Um, What's the strangest or most random job you've ever had? Um, That would probably be, I mean, it wasn't like an official job. It was an under the table job, but the most random job I ever had was I used to work for my grandpa in the summers, painting his fence with used motor oil. What? (laughs) My grandpa used to, uh, he has a big pasture with a bunch of mules and animals and used motor oil would seal the wood that he would, he'd split his own logs to build it. And like used oil would seal it. So it would be a little more weatherproof. 
And he'd pay me $10 an hour to go out and paint the fence with used motor oil. I mean, that is, in fact, a strange and random job. Yeah. And I did not know that about used motor oil. So look at that. <laughs> Learning experience yes. all the way. Um, you learn a lot when you work for my grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it. If you have a free afternoon that's totally yours, what's your favorite way to spend it? Um, usually my favorite way to spend it is I go to the gym for at least an hour. And then I go to the library for at least half an hour. Um, And then I just go home and curl up on the couch with either a really good book or a really terrible TV show, like one I don't have to think about, and just curl up with my cat and just relax and shut off my phone and don't talk to anybody. (laughs) Yeah, everything you just said sounds amazing. Um, Speaking of wonderful books, anything you've read lately that you've loved? Um, I actually just finished Throne of Glass. Oh my God, wait, did you hear about that from me? No, I I think I've heard you mention it, but I'm in this like book bingo thing on Facebook and one of the squares on the bingo card was you have to read someone in the group's top 10. And one of my best friends from college was like, oh, here's my top 10. And I've literally read everything else on her top 10. And I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. I'll pick it up from the library and... It was amazing. Oh my god! Did you have you only read the first one? Yes, I have the other ones to pick up from the library today. <laughs> oh my god! Okay, so this was basically like the last month of—I mean, month of my life. I read them all, each one in like a day. I <laughs> this is the problem. That's oh, why wow. I don't read that much fiction because then I like quit my whole life to like dive into it because I can't stop because I don't know what moderation is clearly, and I'm an <laughs> obsessive obsessive binge person. But my friend Amina, who has similar taste in a lot of. Th- things like books and stuff as me and Mm -hmm. she basically texted me I was like I have all these feelings about these books I need someone to talk to like please read these books and I was like all right all right I was kind of like had some time I read through them so fast I was so obsessed and now there's still two more that have to come out so now I'm just like in agony waiting oh no I did not know about the two more yeah yeah um so there's five that are out and a book of novellas okay so basically read one two three and then the novellas, and then four and five, and then please email me and let me know, and we can discuss all our feelings about these books. I'm basically like live texting her while reading them, and I'm just like, I can't with all my feelings. They're so good. They get so, oh my god, I'm so, I'm like jealous of you that you're reading them for the first time. (laughs) Well, did you know she has another series out? Uh, Don't worry, I started it today. I've been putting it off because this is a really, really busy month for me, and so Mm -hmm. I got it from the library on my Kindle, and so I only have 21 days, and I'm like, it's fine. Once I start reading it, it'll only take me a day or two, but I keep putting it off, keep putting it off. It's funny, I just put this on Instagram today on my Instagram stories I was laying out in my hammock I gave myself like a 30 minute break after lunch because I've just been so busy and mm-hmm. I'm like don't do it don't start this book like you're not you can't fall down another binge hole and like five minutes <laughs> later I was like motherfucker I started the book and so now I'm just like ah I mean first world problems forever but <laughs> yeah I, I just started that book last night because I'm dying for my books to come from the library so yeah I started the court of thorn, thorn and roses last night Yes. So far, I'm not as into it as Throne of Glass, but people say the second book in that series is amazing. So I am waiting it out. But yeah, Throne of Glass is the best series I've read in a really long time. Um, Well, that's good. So yes, please email me when you're reading them and tell me all your feelings. Okay. (laughs) Well, that went off on a tangent. I love it. Um, The last question, what's one thing that you wish people were more open and honest about? Oh, um, that's a really good question. Uh, You know, I'm always curious about people, like, their background. A lot of people, when you first meet them, they give you, like, the brief, 
eh, well, this is where I'm from, sort of, you know, highlight version. And that's why I love your show so much is because it goes so much deeper than that. But I always want to know, like, your your story of what you've overcome. And a lot of people don't like to talk about it very much. Mm, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I want to know everything about everyone. But yes, that, yes. that too, for sure. <laughs> um, so you are a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible, since you make a small and powerful pledge each season to help fund the costs of producing the show. And I would love for you to share why you decided to support the show in this way and what you love about our sort of behind the scenes community group okay um well i've been a follower of yours for a very long time um i think when i first found your blog you had just built the ball pit on your patio oh my gosh that was in (laughs) i was it was funny i was thinking about that this morning knowing that you and i were going to talk i'm like man i feel like she and i have been like in the same like online whatever for a really long time yeah that was 2010 like that was early 2010 yeah. That was before um, I quit I drinking. Had, that was when I, yeah, I lived with Jamie and we built a ball pit. Okay. Anyway, I keep going. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I've been following you for pretty much forever. Um, that yours was like the third or fourth blog I started reading when I found out blogging was a thing. Um, I'm from a really, really small town, so I didn't know it existed until then. Um, and then you started the show and I loved it. And then you started going community supported and I wanted to support so bad, but I just financially couldn't up until... Um, you did two interviews back to back. You interviewed, I'm going to butcher her last name and I apologize. Uh, Lauren Fleshman. Yeah. Lauren Fleshman. Yeah. Yes. And then, um, oh, I'm, why am I blanking on his name? I have his book. The guy who did level up your life. Oh, Steve Cam. Yes. Those were back to back. And those were like, I went home and went to my husband and I never really talked to him about podcasts because he doesn't care about the podcasts I listen to. <laughs> sure. Uh, <laughs> and I, but I listened to those two and I went home and I was like, you have to listen to these episodes. And I went out and bought Steve's book right away. And I was like, these two interviews were just so real and so interesting. Like, they're all interesting, but I didn't really relate to anybody until those two. And I don't know what it is about those two. Maybe because I absolutely love picky bars. And so that's why I, Lauren caught my attention. But um, those two made me be like, okay, no matter what, I have to make it work that this show keeps going because you brought people like this into my life. Aww. Uh, and so like ever since then, I... I'm a little behind on episodes. I'm not going to lie. I mean, they're really long episodes. There's no rush. They're not going anywhere. (laughs) Yes. uh, There was about a a year. So for a year and a half, I worked at a job where I could listen to a podcast during the day. Like my boss encouraged me to listen to headphones. And then for a year, I was at a job where we weren't allowed to listen to headphones. And I was carpooling with my husband and he didn't want to listen to podcasts. And I just things got so crazy that I got really far behind. (laughs) So I'm catching up. Um, I'm actually currently on the episode with Nick Simmons, which is making my little fangirl heart. Oh my God, please. I know I had said I had such a fangirl moment too. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it was listening to him and then knowing that I was going to talk to you. My heart is like exploding (laughs) with happiness. Um, So you like the running and athlete episodes I'm picking up on. (laughs) I, I love the running and athlete episodes. I, I've never been really interested in working for myself. So the entrepreneur ones are kind of like, eh, but in the last year I've really started committing more to going to the gym and I have done 
since October of last year, I have now done three half marathons, um, which before October of last year, you could barely get me to do a 5k. Mm -hmm. Um, and so just like hearing their, like what inspired them always makes me really happy. (laughs) And I'm rambling. I am sorry. No, I'm in hey. That's <laughs> awesome. I mean, I'm I'm flattered and I love it and I so appreciate the support. Yeah. Um, so I I just I love the show so much that it it's on like almost nonstop real talk for oh it's been like that for the last like three weeks or so. <laughs> so funny. I love it. Well, thank you. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities like this, like doing outros, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much your support means to me. And it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can and no matter what we're in this together